You're listening to Amplify Art's Alternate Currents interview series. Alternate Currents opens space for conversation, discussion, and action around national and international issues in the arts that have a profound impact at the local level. This interview series is just one part of the Alternate Currents blog, a dedicated online resource linking readers to topical articles, interviews, and critical writing that shine a spotlight on artist-led policy platforms, cross-sector partnerships, and artist-driven community change. Visit often and join the conversation at amplifyarts.org backslash alternate currents. We recently sat down with Jared Ledesma, senior curator at the Akron Art Museum, to follow up on From the Margins to the Center, Inclusive Curatorial Practices and Cultural Institutions, an alternate currents panel discussion hosted in August of 2021. We spoke more about methodological shifts in the curatorial field, institutional barriers to working inclusively, and what adopting more inclusive curatorial practices might mean for arts organizations committed to equity and justice. Chair Ledesma joined the Akron Art Museum as senior curator in July 2021. Prior to Akron, Ledesma was associate curator at the Des Moines Art Center, where he organized more than a dozen exhibitions. This includes Queer Abstraction, which earned a commendation from the 2019 Sotheby's Prize Jury, and the 2020 SECAC Award for Outstanding Exhibition and Catalog of Contemporary Materials. Other exhibitions Ledesma has organized include Iowa Artists, 2021, Olivia Valentine, Hedda Stern, Imagination and Machine, Jeffrey Gibson, I Was Here, the Art Students League of New York, and I Too Am American. Before working at the Des Moines Art Center, Ledesma was curatorial assistant in the Department of Painting and Sculpture at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Ledesma is originally from the San Francisco Bay Area and holds both a BA and MA in art history with a focus in queer art. Uh, so my name is Jared Ledesma. I'm a senior curator at the Akron Art Museum in Ohio. And um, I manage the exhibition program at the Akron Art Museum and also the collection and accessions program. Um, basically everything that has to do with our galleries, inside our galleries, um, and the building of the permanent collection and display of the collection. So back in August, you joined us for you joined us for an alternate currents panel discussion along with Natalie Bell, Mary Lawson, and Jared Packard, who moderated about inclusive curatorial practices. And during that discussion, we started talking um, a little bit about the idea that um, inclusive curatorial practices are working with and in community to organize and create exhibitions um, can, in a way, uh, queer institutional systems and structures. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit and also your definition of queerness and what that means in the context of your curatorial practice. Yeah, sure. So, um, and I don't know if I mentioned this in the prior um, Zoom panel, but my focus in graduate school was queer art. Um, I focused on Felix Gonzalez Torres and um, I think that that focus really prepared me for focusing on LGBTQ art and artists as a career. Um, my thesis was on um, an archive at Bard College that preserves the love letters that were exchanged between Ross and Felix and basically asking why has no one heard of this? Um, should it be used as evidence to support his art and so on? So I kind of 
started with that and really thinking about where are the LGBTQ artists in museums and how can we find them and what are these stories that are the untold stories that I can help tell. Um, and I think that's more of my engagement with queerness in, um, in that way in my career. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, queer theory came out of feminist theory and feminism, the second wave of feminism and, and um, thinking about inclusiveness and LGBTQ um, um, histories and psychology. Um, and so when I think about, um, you know, it's interesting because when I think about curating an exhibition, I don't typically go to queer theory um, to support my thesis. I definitely, um, Sometimes we'll look to someone like Foucault or um, Jose Esteban Munoz um, for ideas to support a thesis um, and also to see whether it's been said or done um, to be sure I'm not crazy. <laughs> um, um, like, for example, when I was um, organizing a show on Louis Fertino and his art, and, and I was thinking, in a way, his work Kind of creates a type of utopia um, and then I would look to Jose Munoz and his queer utopia and kind of find a, a support there for my thesis and um, uh, yeah I think it's interesting in curating this way as especially focusing on LGBTQ artists um, there's like I don't I don't want to call it revisionist but it's it's kind of like when you organize an LGBTQ art exhibition, um, it's it can be seen as ghettoizing the artists in a way, but also um, it's also making making them more well known. Um, and we can't really think that the United States is how the whole world is as far as like this post we're over queerness or we're over this. Um, you know, that we've achieved a certain type of equality, definitely the world isn't at that state. And um, we have to remember that we are in our own kind of social climate and there are other social climates, um, not just um, nationally, but globally, but also regionally um, as well. So this is something that's on my mind when I think about organizing an, a queer exhibition. So there's the theory there is for a, a support, um, but also kind of the context or the regional aspect or the geographical region um, as well. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good point. I also often feel like institutions themselves kind of have their own um, social climates, kind of create their own sort of social capital or um, become an yeah. part of a social ecosystem or a cultural ecosystem in a city. Mm -hmm. um, you work at a big institution what do you does what does queerness work toward or against in an institutional setting? And you know, you mentioned also the importance of kind of looking at specific regions and how um, queerness is perceived differently according to region. Um, I guess the second part to that question is whether or not you think the the stakes change when working in a place like Akron or Des Moines as opposed to a place like New York or Los Angeles. Um, yeah, I think. It's interesting. We're at an interesting moment right now as far as queerness. I think my response to your question is more of a um, kind of logistics in museums where I think of, for example, our collections database 
um, and how we address sexuality or an artist's sexuality. Um, if I wanted to organize a show based on or using objects in our collection, um, focusing on queer artists, it would be awesome if I could just type in queer or LGBTQ and whoop, you know, pops up a whole list of artists. Um, that's not the case right now. And some collection databases I've seen, um, some museums have, have done that, which is awesome. Um, but I think, you know, that's, that's a, an example of queering um, the institution logistically and, and also at the Akron Art Museum, um, since I've started, we've, we've started adding pronouns in our accession defenses. So when I propose a new object for the collection, um, I write up a, like a mini essay about the object um, and give all the information, the details about the artist. And so now we've included a space for pronouns um, because if they're living, it's great to collect that information now um, and check with them to be sure instead of guessing as far as for artists in the past or, um, and it's, it's awesome. And it's already, it's, it's been well received by our committee and, um, by the rest of the staff. So, um, it's really great, but we're also, you know, at the Akron Art Museum, we're thinking about, this just came up the other day. Should it be LGBTQ plus? Should it be LGBT, LGBTQIA plus? Should it, should it be queer and trans folks? You know, um, um, so these are definitely things that we're thinking about. Um, luckily, there's the American Alliance Museums. Uh, they have an LGBTQ alliance, which is awesome, and has prepared a set of guidelines for museum um, folks like myself to kind of help us with that. But um, it's, I think we're in a really interesting moment right now, um, maybe over the past five years or so, where I think queer folks less and less, um, maybe I'm wrong, but are moving to San Francisco or moving to Los Angeles or moving to New York. I feel like a lot of queer folks, queer and trans folks are starting to, like if, they're from Topeka, Kansas, moving to Kansas City, um, or from Ames, Iowa, moving to Des Moines, um, you know, or uh, Youngstown, Ohio, moving to Cleveland. Like, I, I feel like there's more, this is happening more, and there are these centers um, that are starting to form um, in the Midwest for queer and trans folks where we feel more comfortable um, moving to, um, because there's this, we're kind of in this, um, I, don't, I don't even know what to call it, not a new era, but um, there's definitely something happening um, that's no longer on the coast, um, that's now starting to appear in the Midwest, and, and it's really exciting. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like I see that too, even in Omaha. Um, I also think it's interesting, you mentioned that um, categorization, categorization and the definitions of how you assign um, identity to artists in the collection uh, is kind of fluid and changes, and there's a lot of openness and possibility there, which, um, you know, is kind of one of the fundamental tenets of, of queer theory too, right? Mm -hmm. How do you, know, do you, how do you think that, how do you think a, a, an institution can ensure that that openness remains in place in the uh, present, but also in the future, if those definitions or, or categories continue to um, change and transform and remain fluid? Well, um, I just finished 
a curatorial vision for the Akron Art Museum, uh, which is a document that I wrote out um, with the help of my colleagues at the museum. And it basically just lays out our collecting principles and our exhibition principles that support why we collect what we're collecting and why we're showing what we're showing. Um, and there's one principle that, that um, discusses that we support artists who have been marginalized or from communities that have been marginalized in some way and support scholarship around this and them and making them more well-known. And um, I think even just having that is a way to ensure that this continues um, because when, you know, um, and this is a document and it's stated on the document that is revisited every five years to be sure that it remains relevant for the time period. And um, so if we go to buy something for the collection, we make sure that it, that the purchase of the artwork is supported by one of these principles. And in many cases, they intersect. They could be a black trans um, female artist um, or um, an Iranian artist who happens to be female or yeah, there's a, there are many intersections, but um, this is definitely something I think a lot of museums have practiced this. This has been going on um, for a little while, but I don't know how many of us have actually sat down and written it down and try to be more transparent about this process, um, which is interesting, but um, I think that will help kind of ensure that um, that process and, and that research that goes into artists' identities and sexualities and genders. Yeah, that's super interesting. Sorry, that was kind of a weird little side road, but... No, it's okay. <laughs> um, so back in August, we also talked a little bit about um, querying the process of organizing exhibitions and sort of flattening the hierarchies that separate museums from the communities in which they're situated um, by incorporating more community-informed decision-making um, at an early stage in the exhibition planning process. Um, can you talk a little bit about or give an example of what that process looks like and how you, um, in your practice, work to balance institutional priorities with the needs of the communities that you're working with? Yeah, so, um, I think queer abstraction is, is the best example that I have for that is when we looked to community organizations well in advance of the show opening. Um, but I think a, another, um, great example is, um, an exhibition that I'm starting to work on right now on, um, queerness and Afrofuturism. Um, this is an idea I've had for a little while. There's a center for Afrofuturism in, in um, Iowa City at the University of Iowa. Um, and uh, but I, I'm, I'm noticing their, their Afrofuturist shows popping up now. And so I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm getting nervous. I have to do this now. But, um, but, but then, no, I don't because I want it to be well-researched. And also, um, I am not Black. Um, I am not a scholar on Afrofuturism, so this is definitely something that I will need help with. Um, I will really want to get the conversation started early with the Center for Afrofuturism, but also talk to some scholars on Afrofuturism who could help with the curatorial process. Um, and so I think, yeah, what I'm getting is that we, we really need to start these conversations early with community organizations 
um, make sure it's known that you want this relationship to continue beyond an exhibition, that this is a partnership that will live on past the exhibition's closing date, um, and make good on that promise. I think that's important as well. So when working in this way, and working more inclusively and working the, the uh, essentially queer some operational aspects of the institution that have been very staid and kind of immobile for many years, um, do you, in, in what ways do you think working like that could potentially decentralize wealth and power in the cultural sector um, on a broader scale? Um, it, that reminds me of this amazing essay by Jennifer Doyle on Queer Warhol, um, where she talked, I think that's what it's called, where she opens by um, mentioning these uh, Warhol screen prints or lithographs um, in a gay bar in Los Angeles. Do you know it? Do you know that essay? It's ringing a bell. Okay. It's just like she talks about these, um, these prints that are in a gay bar in LA and how they're really vulgar and dirty. Um, and how, but then when we see Warhol in a museum, it's the Jackies or it's the Brilla boxes. It's, you know, um, and, and so she talks about, you know, that's the Warhol that people, that people want to see. And it's in centralized in a gay bar. And why is it important that it's in a gay bar? And, um, can, can the two coexist? Can a gay bar be in a museum or vice versa? And so I think that's kind of what you're getting at too, or what I'm thinking about as far as the museum and going into neighborhoods or communities and really thinking about um, uh, like the, um, I, don't, I don't know what to say, but the aspects of the community or the characteristics of the community or what that community is about and, um, and thinking about that more importantly. Um, yeah. yeah, I totally agree. Um, we also talked a little bit about back in August, the process of discovery as being sort of analogous to one of colonization, um, uh, or those two things at least emerging from the same sort of cultural logic. Um, as a kind of counter, counter argument to that, I feel like discovery is a really important concept um, and an important process for a lot of queer people. Um, if you were to kind of take that idea of discovery and reframe it, um, uh, within your curatorial practice, how how would you ground that in a queer ontology? Um, yeah, so I think, you know, I think that's one approach to curating is um, finding the lost, forgotten female artists who never had a voice in her during her time. Um, and it's the same for queer artists. And I, I think that's really important um, and part of my job. I see that as definitely part of, as um, a curator and an art historian, um, I could go on another tangent, but I think, yeah, a curator and an art historian. <laughs> um, and that's part of my job is to bring those stories to light. Um, I think a great example is Agnes Pelton, and I don't know if I talked about this in the Zoom panel. Um, um, do you know Agnes Pelton? Are you familiar with the or not, the um, Phoenix Art Museum? Did a huge show recently of her work, and it traveled to the Whitney and to Palm Springs as well. And 
Um, but so the Des Moines Art Center has a phenomenal painting by Agnes Pelton in its collection. Um, and it was something that I discovered when I first arrived there. And it's beautiful. She was a 20th century, mid, mid-century artist, um, mostly abstract paintings. Um, she made her living by doing like desert landscapes, but um, they're, they're really, they're stunning. And, um, and in my research, I found an LA Times review of an exhibition. Um, and it says Pelton, it said Pelton, a lesbian, Da, 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 da. And I was like, whoa, this is awesome. <laughs> like not only a lesbian artist, but an early 20th century lesbian artist. Like, wow, this is like, I was like really excited. Um, so I did more research and ended up um, being, I, I wrote up a proposal for a panel um, that I think, oh, I'm forgetting, I think it was at um, not CAA, but another art history conference. Ah, I'm forgetting the name of it. It's, I'm forgetting the name of it. But so I, the but the paper was on Agnes Pelton and and queerness or queer sexuality, and I got so much um, pushback from scholars. Um, I wouldn't say loads of people, but uh, many scholars reached out to me and they were like, "Are you the one doing the paper on Agnes Pelton being queer?" And she wasn't queer. Why is this important? Why are you doing this? One person told me, you know, she would have hated you going into her personal history like this. And, and I was like, okay, all that's very good, but this is really important for us now. Um, and, and I don't know where, um, the, it's the LA times art critic. Um, I'm forgetting his name too. Sorry, I'm kind of blanking, but I reached out to him and I was like, where did you find this source? What was your source for calling her a lesbian? And he was like, I don't remember. <laughs> um, and then I talked to other people that were like, oh yeah, she was lesbian. And it was just, um, but I think these stories are really important. And I think, you know, at the end, the conclusion of my paper, I say, we're not sure. And that's fine. Um, I think what's most important is that we can't assume by default that a person is heterosexual. And it's the same when we're writing about artists who um, were living in the early 20th century where the language wasn't there. And perhaps she was asexual or queer. She didn't have very many partners that we're aware of. And um, But this research and this documentation to me is really important um, um, as an art historian and a curator. Yeah, that's a good segue too into talking about the role that representation continues to play and how it can potentially transform institutions. Do you think um, do you think our discussions about representation around representation um, are becoming obsolete? Is it is it over? Is it all identity poli- politics? Does it still matter? What do you think? I think now it definitely matters. Um... Now we're in this moment of um, racial reckoning and, um, you know, the um, resurgence of the reemergence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, I think it's really important. And now museums are under fire, I think, as far as owning owning up to what they show. Why are they showing what they show? Um, Owning up to the fact that um, are you 
with this movement that museums are not neutral or how do you feel about that? And um, I think that's, I think finally the public is starting to question these institutions and their authority um, and how they are artifacts of colonialism. And um, I think right now, I think it's a great time. I think there was a period where, yeah, like exhibitions, like women's exhibitions or queer exhibitions were, um, like I mentioned earlier, were seen as ghettoizing. But I think now we're in kind of a moment where like, yes, museums are expected to do shows like this. And um, we want to bring out artworks by LGBTQ artists in our collection and highlight them in some way and um, and focus on diversity. Um, I At least I hope. I don't know if that's too optimistic or... <laughs> um, yeah, I think I read, um, I reread an article by, um, in Art Forum by Helen Molesworth, where she talks about the reinstallation of the Museum of Modern Arts permanent collection after they reopened, I think that was in 2019. Um, because we, for next year, the Akron Art Museum is celebrating its centennial. And part of that will be reinstalling the permanent collection. Um, so I wanted to get some, um, some ideas and also hear what Helen Molesworth, who I highly respect, had to say about MoMA and the reinstallation. And, you know, um, she says it's, it's good, it's interesting, um, but it's not enough. And um, she says, and I, I love this, she asks, can there be like Picasso's Guernica or Demoiselle d'Avignon? Um, can a work by a black woman artist have that type of um, iconicity? Like, can it be an icon in that way? And instead of pairing objects like a black artist and a white artist together to say, hey, these two worked at the same time period, highlight the work by the black artist as like an anchor um, in the gallery and then support it with other artworks from the collection. And I, I think that's an awesome idea. Um, and the, these are things that some curators have been thinking about for a long time. Um, but finally, we're starting to really, this, this, the work by these former curators is coming to light and it's starting to take on, I think. Yeah, that's great. Jared, thank you so much. We appreciate you talking to us again. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to, to talk to you again and to see you. Um, and I'm looking forward to going back to Omaha sometime in the future. I love Omaha. It's a great city with a great bookstore. Oh, yeah. Jackson Street. Yeah. Yeah. Would I love call? that. I spend way too much money there. <laughs>